Customer advocacy platform Mention Me recently hosted Advocacy Engineered, the world's leading event on the power of customer advocacy. More than 200 senior marketers from brands including Puma, Deliveroo, Charlotte Tilbury, Marks & Spencer, John Lewis, Farfetch, and other big names joined us in London to hear from industry experts on how to drive sustainable business growth in the tough times ahead. This podcast series presents the live recordings of each of our speakers on the day. The one you're about to listen to comes from former Managing Director at Amazon and former ASOS Chairman Brian McBride on why brands must evolve now. Really, really delighted to see a a packed house again. It's just, uh, I think we all know that no matter how good your home setup is, you cannot beat being part of a live event. And this looks like a real, a real cracking event. Um, I'm going to talk about change. Uh, when you get to my age, a lot of what you talk about will seem like history to you. It's really just my life to me. But I'm going to talk about some of the big trends that have got us here today. And these massively disruptive changes that are going on, it's not just because of the pandemic. They've been going on for years. They've been going on for seven or eight years. And yet today, some people still don't get the message. I mean, digital disruption has been going on for over 10 years. The, the, the smartphone came along about 12 years ago, and that really was the, the catalyst here. But the changes that we are seeing today uh, are going to be irreversible. And in fact, for some organizations, they're going to be terminal. When I think about the, the retail industry, you look at the carnage that's gone on over the past five years. You look at the closures, you know, J.C. Penney, The Gap, Victoria's Secrets in the U.S. and the U.K., you know, we've seen... Uh, the, the big anchor tenants in most departments uh, and, and most shopping malls were the department stores. They're all disappearing, and now they're threatening to bring some of those malls down with them. You think of House of Fraser, Mothercare, Debenhams, all falling by the wayside. You look at what's happened to the, the Philip Green uh, Arcadia uh, conglomerate, and that's disappeared as well. So basically, what I would say if you're in retail is that There is no one player in retail globally today, with the exception of Amazon, that that can actually say that they will be here in three years' time. So retail itself is not threatened, but every single player, with the exception of Amazon, might just not be around to see what's going on here. And this disruption that's going on today, it's not just retail. It's happening in every every customer-facing industry. Think about what's going on in, in, in telecoms and in TV. You've seen... Netflix, you've seen Amazon, you've seen the, the cord cutters come along, uh, and you don't need special boxes, you don't need long-term contracts for them to give you product and content the way you want it and in your terms. We've seen it in finance and financial services with, with the rise of you know, the, 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 the fintech banks. We've seen it in travel with the rise of the OTAs. So this is going on all around us. It's happening everywhere. Now, I've observed this from, from inside and from outside. So this is basically uh, some of the companies that I've spent my time with. Uh, they weren't called digital then, they were called tech. Um, and I was lucky, I started off in Xerox. My first job was selling photocopiers. I had a photocopier in the back of an estate car. And you had to get rid of that photocopier because if you didn't, there was no chance of taking the girl out with that thing in the back of your car, let me assure you. It was, uh, it, was a, it was a good sales training. I spent about 10 years in IBM. I worked here, I worked in the US. Uh, and then I've been fortunate to, to move through the, the transitions that we've seen in the industry as the PC came along, and then more importantly, networking, the ability to use and, and link devices, first locally and then remotely. I moved through with Dell and with Lucent. I arrived in T-Mobile uh, just as Deutsche Telekom had taken it over at the time when we didn't even have 3G. 
And, you know, people thought, why would you want to try and use the internet in this big clunky brick that we carried about with ourselves? Well, we saw that transition in the course. We saw Nokia just about disappear, having had 60% the mobile phone market. It completely missed the beat. It missed what customers wanted. It didn't listen to the customers. Apple came out of nowhere with no history in phone and just about took over the smartphone market. So we've seen a lot of change going on. And of course, my last day job was working as a head of the UK for Amazon. I was hired by Jeff Bezos to, to build the UK up. It was in reasonable shape, but it just needed a different approach to leadership. And I'll talk a little bit at the end about leadership and about the Amazon approach to leadership. And people say to me, well, you've been, then I've had a very enjoyable uh, portfolio career uh, working as a chair and in organizations like Huawei, the BBC, Trainline, I chair, I, I, I chair Trainline today, EO. So I have worked with some great entrepreneurs. Uh, and then I've been dragged back into the establishment and I'm becoming uh, president of C, the CBI later on this month. And people say to me, oh, you're really lucky to have uh, worked for some of those companies. And, and I think I have been. But I do like, when you talk about luck, I like thinking about the great Stoic philosopher Seneca. Seneca was around when we went from BC to AD. Seneca was an advisor to Emperor Nero. Um, and Seneca said, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. So you've got to be ready for that luck when it comes along. You've got to recognize it. And then you've got to really take it by both hands. And Seneca, of course, being a Stoic, Nero distrusted them, thought he was trying to undermine them, ordered them to commit suicide. And being a Stoic, Seneca did. So a very sad end to that story. A man who's produced a lot of great quotes. Right, let's just kind of talk about how did we get here today? Uh, you may have heard of Moore's Law in the dim and distant past. I've lived through Moore's Law in my working life. Gordon Moore, uh, Vice President of Technology at Intel, he and a few friends started working on the microprocessor. They saw that you could actually start to pack more and more transistors onto the silicon wafer. Those transistors themselves were getting more powerful. And he projected that the power of that microprocessor was going to double every 18 months. And it's an observation. It's not a physical law. But what does that mean to you and I? What does that mean today? What does Moore's Law mean? Well, basically what Moore's Law did was it, it took things and it compressed them and it made them faster, smaller, cheaper, and easier to use. I used to sell IBM mainframes. A mainframe computer would have covered this room and more. And every computer device needs a storage device. And I used to sell storage devices, which would have been as high as this, probably that wide. It's the first device I sold cost 60,000 pounds, and it stored half a gigabyte of storage. Half a gigabyte of storage for 62,000 pounds. That was back in 1983, 94. And now what you get today through Moore's Law is you can get a thousand times that on that little device there, and it will cost you 12 pounds on Amazon, and they'll pop it through your letterbox tomorrow. So we have taken something that size, reduced it, made it a thousand times more powerful, and just obliterated the price. So Moore's Law has got us to a place where all of the technology you need sits in your pocket. But it's not just about Moore. I also talk about uh, Darwin. Uh, it's a pretty dry read, Darwin's theory of uh, evolution. He wrote it in 1859 of the origin of the species. I can see if you're pretty dull two or three days by just encapsulating it in a couple of lines. What Darwin tells us is it's not the strongest of the species that survives. It's not the fastest. It's the most adaptable. It's those who are observing what's going on in their natural environment and they're adapting and changing because of that. And I've seen it all the way through. I've seen big, great companies disappear from boroughs, from digital equipment, to Tandem, to Compact, to Netscape. I talked about Nokia. BlackBerry was going to be the killer device for email. They've come and gone. So too many of the, the companies out there have failed 
to respond to, to what was Darwin's theory of evolution. So, I got a few messages. First of all, digital is disrupting every uh, consumer industry on a massive scale, and nobody's going to escape it. Secondly, I hope you've got by now, it's all about the smartphone. And thirdly, and really a lot of the purpose of today's conference, it's about knowing your customer. It's social media, it's big data, it's engagement marketing. Um, and I think that was one of the things that I got. The most important lesson I learned, I thought it was quite an experienced salesman when I went to visit, when I went to work for, for Amazon. But Jeff Bezos had a great mantra, a great phrase. He said, start with a customer and work backwards. You wouldn't change a pixel color, you wouldn't change the button, you wouldn't change where the buy box went on any aspect of that site unless you'd run an A-B test, unless you'd seen which treatment the customer preferred. So it was all about why are you doing this? What's in it for the customer? And unless you had a good answer to that question, you didn't do it. So it's all about knowing your customer. And I think this is the big difference between the bricks and mortar stores uh, and the online stores. What you'll find is that uh, the e-commerce players have got very few assets. They don't have lots of stores. They don't have lots of staff. They don't have lots of touch points. They've got lots of customers and lots of data about them. And it's how they use that that, that keeps them in front. When I think about the world of fashion, when I cheered ASOS, you had uh, Topshop and River Island and Miss Selfridge, a lot of great retailers. But you know, they had all of these stores on Oxford Street, and if a 23-year-old PA, which was probably the typical ASOS customer, ambled down Oxford Street, they were lucky if she walked into their store or not. They didn't know she was coming, didn't know what she liked, didn't know her preferences, and therefore couldn't necessarily have product in there to suit. Whereas if you're, a, if you're an online customer, you have a very intimate relationship, a permission-based relationship with that customer. You know when payday is. You know what the birthday is. You know what color their hair is, because they've probably uploaded a photograph of themselves. You know what they like and what they don't like. If they never wear white jeans, why set out a recommendation with white jeans in it? So it's all about using that knowledge, using that intimacy to serve up and curate for your customer. So a company like ASOS, 100,000 SKUs, 25 million customers, it sounds great, but you've then got to make sense of that vast data pool and serve it up on a mobile phone, four or five relevant recommendations. And that's the secret of it. And this is where AI and machine learning come in. Because basically, artificial intelligence today has become part of our daily life. What we're seeing on Twitter, the recommendations we're getting on Facebook, on Google, the shows that, that Amazon Prime or Netflix recommend to us, um, the, the, even going through the airports, all of the face detection stuff, is using a form of AI called supervised machine learning, or machine learning for short. And, and basically, machine learning means that you can, you can teach a, a computer, a machine, to learn something there's no clue about just based on a lot of data. For instance, uh, you can show a machine a lot, of, a lot of images and train it to detect whether or not there's a cat in, in, in the image. And after being sufficiently trained, you can input any, any image at all, which the machine has not seen before, and it will tell you whether there's a cat in it or not. The more data the machine gets exposed to, the more you iterate, the much better, the much more reliable it comes. And so most of the apps that we're seeing today in retail are using some form of machine learning. Now, uh, why do we need it? Well, basically, it's going to help you scale your business. You know, you don't need a whole bunch of humans to work out if there's spam on that email. You're going to use the machine to do that. Uh, and you can go from classifying 10,000 emails an hour to classifying a million. And that's what the machine is going to do for you. And so that's where companies like ASOS build a recommendation engine. Uh, and that's where personalization 
and discoverability comes into it. Because there's so much data there that that engine will recommend, uh, that will understand the relationships between items that the human mind could not. It's just like one big giant spreadsheet. And those relationships are too complex or they involve too much data for the human mind to be able to process. So it looks at all of the interactions between customers and data over the past 12 months, and it will serve up a small number of very relevant recommendations. So big data at these companies is working with billions of rows, millions of columns, where no humans can spot the pattern. And then people say, but this is a bit spooky. Are the machines going to take over? What's the role of the human in this? And I think what we think is that uh, machines won't necessarily beat humans, but humans working with a machine will always outperform humans working without them. And so it's not so much, I think, artificial intelligence, it's more augmented intelligence. You're using the machine to help you. We use it at a train line. We use it at different stages of the planning cycle there. Planning, researching, trying to uh, discover your journey. Choosing and buying tickets. You've heard of a thing called split ticket. If you go from London to Manchester and you just buy the ticket that's served up to you in that machine in the, in the train station, there's a pretty good chance you'll get ripped off. So we've exploded the whole book of train journeys and we can say to you, buy a ticket that goes Manchester, Milton Keynes, Milton Keynes, London. You don't change seats, you don't go off the train but you'll end up, we're saving customers about 160 million a year just by finding these kinks within that system. So this is all about doing the thinking, doing, doing the work for the customer. And, uh, and even again, price prediction. You're thinking of going to Cornwall for a wedding uh, in early July, and you look at the price of the train, and you think, oh, wait, oh, wait, oh, wait. You need to know when that inflection is going to happen, when the price is going to start to go up, and we can help you predict that as well. So... I mean, when you think of a company like that, that's just the sort of amount of data that you have to be able to process, you have to be able to make sense of on a daily basis. We've got about 500 people in train line, 350 of which are tech, and that business is infinitely scalable. We're, we're what I would call um, a bits business, and not an atoms business. It's all about information. We have no warehouses, no product to move around. So we could double the size of the business without having to, to, to double the team. Let's talk a little bit about uh, where social media has been, been going. Clearly, this is where a lot of the, a lot of the, the digital marketing people are, are spending the money today. And there's been an, an explosion here. I mean, we started off uh, with, with MySpace, which didn't last very long. Obviously, Facebook took over. But even then, in, in the fashion business and retail, it's become much more pictorial. So it's sites like Pinterest, into Instagram, TikTok that, that people are after. You look at TikTok coming from nowhere to have you know, 500 million daily average users. It's, it's quite remarkable. And then if you drill down into one of these and just look at uh, in a bit more detail, look where, where Snapchat gets to. 250 million, a quarter of a billion active users daily. And they get to 41% of 18 to 34-year-olds in the US. And the top 10 TV networks get to about 6%. So if you're going to think about where your money goes, you need to understand those demographics. And this is not saying TV and print are bad and digital media is great. It's just saying that today, marketing needs to be a lot more granular. You have to use a lot more tools. You have to know a lot more about your customer. And so you get to ASOS and it's a, a huge focus on content. Uh, so 25 million social followers uh, around all those places. And really just trying to make sure that you are to where your customers are going to be. You're looking for new formats coming along. You're exploiting those. And that content, people go onto the ASOS site, young men, young females, 
Young females are edgy, want to be different, want to be the first. Young men are like pack animals. It's like a uniform for them. If they're going to a wedding, are they going to a party? They need to know, are, uh, are turn-ups in or out? Is it belts? Is it brown shoes? They don't want to be different. So they come to us. We help them with that. They consume that content. We add a bit of value to their life. They remember us, and, and they keep coming back. And, and that's the kind of cycle that, that we build. And then we try and bring this to life through the lives of uh, real people, celebrities that our customers resonate with, Taylor Swift, Miley Cyrus, people like that. So I'll give you a, a, let me just give you a, a quick example. So this is uh, the, the Duchess of Cambridge, uh, Princess Kate. So she was, uh, she was pregnant, I think, with the second child when this happened. Uh, and she was an ASOS customer. She'd bought a maternity dress. And we can't talk about that at the time until she's in the public domain. But she buys a dress, £28. Uh, and we, we've got people called spotters. They're out there. And as soon as there's a reference or a picture of her and her gear, we can then tag the back of it. Maternity dress, ASOS. 28 pounds. So Kate stepped out to open a great charity called Homestart that helps recent mums who've got physical or mental or financial problems. She opened the London office. Bingo, she's wearing our dress. So within about three minutes, we're at tag. It's out there. And then what happened was, and we don't keep big, we don't keep big inventory. There might have been 150 pieces of that dress. Well, obviously they went within about three minutes. But what happened was the hits on our website, you know, went from there to there. And then they stayed there. It was like a free launch of the website. And of course, she turns up in Grazia and in all sorts of places. And for us, it was, a, it was basically a free launch. So it's, it's almost back to, um, back to what I said earlier. It's about Seneca. It's about the lot coming along. Uh, and it's about seizing it when it happens. So how do we drive better engagement experience? I talked about Bezos and his mantra, start with a customer. Uh, and I think that's what it's all about. You know, I, I think too many organizations I meet today, they can't describe who the customer is. If people aren't in sales or customer service, they think, well, that's not me. I think in any organization, you have to know what is it you're doing today. It doesn't matter if you're an accounts, an accounts clerk or somebody in payroll or somebody in admin. What does your job do that at some point impacts the customer? So it, it comes back in retail to uh, the great hulking beast. And every, every conference I go to, uh, the specter of Amazon, you know, comes over it. Is traditional retail going to get killed by Amazon, uh, by ASOS? Uh, will, will the high street die? And I don't think it will. Before the pandemic, it's very hard to get a handle on it, but probably e-commerce's share of total retail would have been about mid-20s. You know, in certain categories, like online grocery, during pandemic, it got up to 60%, falling back again. So I think it's going to end up with 50%. People say by when, I say, it doesn't matter. It's just a, it's an inexorable line. It's a trend, so kind of get used to it and start to prepare for it because it will be here before you think. So, so I, I think that digital is going to disrupt all industries. It's going to disrupt retail, uh, and it's unavoidable. And so there is no middle ground here. That's why I said the story here is evolve or die. If you don't get ready for this, it's going to finish you off. So what I was going to do is, uh, for the next uh, couple of minutes, uh, just finish with some thoughts on, on leadership and, uh, and what I would call digital leadership. Let see where we are. Um, because, uh, you know, I've, I've looked back through tech. Uh, I've, I've worked for some big, slow-moving companies. I've worked for a lot of fast-moving companies. And I think although tech and knowledge of the customer, the things we've spoken about, are really, really important, I think what's going to define 
the winners and losers in any sector is going to be the quality of leadership. Uh, in today's corporate world and leadership in business today, it's much more like a democracy than a monarchy. The days of the boss telling people what to do, jump how high, those days have gone. It's a much different, a much, a much different style that's going to win in leadership today. And so let me talk a little bit about some of the, the Amazon stuff. I mean, the changes in tech came along really with the arrival of the PC. When the PC came along and then networking uh, in the mid-90s, Cisco, Dell, and Intel became the kings. The product and tech cycle speeded up. In the old days of mainframes, it, a mainframe would last about seven years, and it probably had a development program behind it of three years, so it could be a 10-year program. That doesn't happen with PCs when you were changing PCs and laptops and product families basically every, every six to nine months. So people had to make decisions quicker, and I think, actually, they made better decisions. So the modern digital companies that, that I know, they've got, they've got speed, they've got aggression, they've got acquisitiveness, they've got higher attrition. They don't expect people to come in and have a job for life. And new hires actually constantly bring fresh attitudes and ideas. So it's back to Darwinian, you know, but you focus on innovation rather than efficiency. And I think the industry has gone from being an industry populated with smart-suited IBM salespeople wearing collars and ties to the, the almost geeky types that are running the businesses like uh, Google and Amazon. They're well-educated, they're rounded business people, they've got a very high intellectual horsepower, they've got very good EQ, they're comfortable operating at pace, comfortable dealing with ambiguity. They use data, they're collegiate, and they're very non-hierarchical. They like to experiment, they like to make quick decisions and change back if necessary. And Amazon and others don't get it right each time. But you know, there's a great American sporting metaphor where they, they, prefer, they prefer a baseball player who's gonna hit four out of five than three out of three. So if you seek for, for perfection, you may never get there. Uh, now, I'm not an entrepreneur. I talked to you Andy earlier. I don't, I've never had the courage to bet the farm, but I've been lucky to work close in with Michael Dell, with Jeff Bezos, and, and therefore I've been able to observe a lot of very different leadership styles. And leadership at Amazon. Amazon hired uh, against a, a set of leadership principles. So as it was recruiting people, especially people into management, it just said, have they got any of these characteristics or do we believe that we can train these into them? And I'm just going to very quickly clip through these. Insist on the highest standards, uh, you know, which, which is really, really important. Uh, there, there, there was a phrase I, I got from a guy called Ed Catmull, who used to uh, run Pixar, and then he joined Disney. And, and, and he said, leaders' jobs is to build and nurture great teams. He said, give a good idea to a mediocre team and they'll screw it up. Give a mediocre idea to a great team and they'll either fix it or come up with something better. If you get the team right, the chances are that they'll get the ideas right. And a guy called Jim Collins in a book called Good to Great had a very similar thing about getting the right people on the bus. So leadership today is about getting the right team around you. So insisting on the high standards, leaders are right a lot. Their judgment is, is very good, and people respect them for that, and their teams follow them for that as well. They're vocally self-critical. They don't believe they walk in water. They don't believe that everything they do is right. Uh, but they'll, they'll, they'll actually spot the problems in their own team, and then they'll fix them. And leaders... Can we move on? Leaders think big. They create and communicate a bold direction. 
that inspires results. They think differently. They'll take risks. They'll, they'll take challenges. And they'll champion visionary ideas. Leaders hire and develop the best. In Amazon, you were always taught to hire somebody better than you. And I was surrounded in my entire time with people who I thought were smarter than me. And I found it a very energizing, not a very threatening place to be. Again, another sporting metaphor. In America, they, they characterize people as A players, B players, and C players. A players are the stars, the ones that you want in your team. B players are kind of okay, do a decent enough job. Then the C players are the dummies that nobody really wants them. Uh, and I heard this lovely phrase from a, a Cisco executive at a conference. He said, A players hire A players, and B players hire C players. And I think it's very true. A players want the best in their team. B players don't want any threat at all. So they'll hire somebody uh, even more mediocre than them. So uh, I think worth thinking about the, the, the hiring process, I found the most difficult aspect of running companies and being a leader. I spend half my time meeting people, hiring for jobs that didn't exist, just networking. So again, having, having a kind of data-driven little process around it just makes it a little bit better. Leaders develop and earn trust in others. Trust is, is so important in every aspect of life. You know, your personal life, family life, business life. But in leadership, you don't have it without it. In Amazon, we did a thing called uh, disagree and commit. You'd argue the hell for a case. You'd say, I think we should do this versus that. I had a fight with Jeff about the form factor of Kindle when it first came out. But once a decision is made, you all get behind it. You don't go out of the room with sloping shoulders and say, oh, they took the wrong decision. You really get behind it 100%. And it's a, it's a very healthy uh, characteristic to have. And then finally, deliver results. All of the above is not much cop if you're on the business end of the ground. So you actually have to make your numbers as well. So leaders keep teams focused and motivated in order to deliver those results. I'm going to just leave you with a couple of other thoughts. Uh, there was a guy called John Adair. And John Adair uh, was a... He, he did he studied at Cambridge after the war, had to do military service, went down to the, uh, the Middle East and ran a Bedouin tribe, then came back. It ended up becoming one of the great management gurus. He, he, he lectured at Santos, the Royal Military Academy, uh, and then he started writing books. And his books are timeless. His books go back to uh, 1996 and beyond, uh, uh, How to Grow Great Leaders and Effective Leadership. And I'm just going to rattle you through these. You can have a copy of these slides and take them. don't write them all down. So enthusiasm, we talked about it. You know, have you ever met a leader who lacks enthusiasm? Integrity is trust. Toughness. You know, people can be uh, uncomfortable with leaders around because the standards are high. They want to be respected, but not necessarily popular. Fairness. They treat individuals differently but equally. I'm sure you've all worked at some time in your life for an unfair boss. It's not a very pleasant place to be. Warmth. Cold fish do not make good leaders. Humility. The most important phrase a manager can use is, I admit I made a mistake. A bit of humility goes a long way. And then confidence. And then leadership is a, it's a behavior, and it's not a position, it's not a title. You can be a leader in an organization without having a, a big desk or your name in a box. It's, it's the go-to person because of the behavior you radiate. And then let me leave with that one there. Chinese philosopher. People barely knew you were there. So let me just finish with an observation uh, about three types of people in life. There's those that make things happen. There's those that things happen to. And there's those that 
don't even know anything has happened. And so leaders make things happen. So good luck. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Advocacy Engineered presentation. To find out more about Mention Me and how our advocacy-first approach could drive growth for your business, visit mention-me.com.